You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In this part two of the podcast with John Watts, he talks about some of the things that have happened to him on stage, his self-destruct side, and just how many personalities he's got. If you like the podcast, please vote, comment, and pass the word on. It all helps. I mean, you mentioned um, <laughs> sort of having to deal with, with violence, but if you were yeah. in a band in that era, and... and uh, you know, and, and particularly the punk era, there's, yeah, yeah. there was, I mean, as someone who was in the audience, there was violence, yeah. but oh, often yeah, there was violence on stage oh, as yeah. well. Yeah, but the, the band used to get upset with me because I used to like provoking it. I don't know whether you went to venues like the Music Machine in London ever. And yeah. The Music Machine in London, for those, for the uninitiated, you had basically, t- there was two lots of stairs either side of the stage. And if people were sort of leering at me, I'd, come on in, come on in. And they go, what's he? No, 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 stop doing that. Come on. You know, the, the secret is not to jump off the stage. Because I've had beaten up, been beaten up twice by jumping off the stage. Very bad move. We've got two incidents which were dangerous, though. We were in Greece in 1980. We are standing on stage. I was playing. It was a warm night with just a pair of Rupert Bear trousers playing, playing like this. And suddenly the bass player went white. We didn't know what had happened. And then the police started running around everywhere. It was a festival made out of um, corrugate. It was a... An amphitheatre made out of corrugated iron for the night. So it was very urban. But on the side, you've got great wooden posts, which you had the um, PA system attached to. Anyway, after examination, I was wondering what the hell was going on with the police. And uh, the base said, oh, God. I was obviously about, say, three metres in front of him. Somebody would fired a crossbow from one side, and it had gone just in front of the bass player's nose. He was well behind me, two or three. And it was stuck in the side of the, it was stuck in the, side of the wooden thing. But it killed us. And also in those days, I remember playing Manchester, uh, Newcastle Mayfair Ballroom and there was lots of skinheads and there was reggae people and there was bikers. And they're all, they're all sort of big heaving in front of me. And I said, God, kill one another. You're not listening properly, you scumbag. What I failed to notice was there was um, a balcony above us. I didn't know that because I didn't see it because the lighting was bad. And about halfway through our set, I was so lucky. This huge metal table was thrown from about 25 feet it went through the stage in front of the drummer behind me. I mean, that would have killed me. It's ridiculous. And I, was, I got chased through a kitchen by a, a mad Luxembourg um, cook on acid with a, with a big cookery knife who, who claimed I was looking at his girlfriend during the set. And I actually did the, I had to do the cartoon diving out the toilet window to escape. I've done it once. <laughs> and also my biggest claim to fame is that People thought that I wasn't a psychologist. They thought I was a psychopath. And the Stranglers, who we were assigned to on UA, I mean, I talked to John Jack about it. They thought we were nuts. They kept well clear of us. Because our first gig in Berlin, we played with it. We had a student support band. And during the support band, this lunatic was screaming at them all the way through and put them right off. And they had to leave the stage. So we came on. We did two numbers. This person was still screaming. <laughs> so I said, look, if you don't shut up, and the next time I'm going to come down, I'm going to pull your head off. And so he's going, yeah. So you, you know what the theatre where you get three levels and you hear the wood. So I'm halfway through a song, throw the guitar down, bonk, and you can hear me running down. <laughs> <laughs> so I stretched him around the thing, beat him up. All his mates joined in and started pulling my legs off and hitting me with bits of, the, bits of seats. Then all the crowd joined in. Anyway, I went back and I forgot. I'd done verse one. I went back and did verse three. But those kind of incidents went down in folklore in the United Artists. And so I was known as a bloke who was always involved in fights. 
So it's quite, we've got a great film from the, what was it? Was it the ICA? Yeah, well, I got attacked by a bloke with a Coke can and, and we, had a col- we had a colour film that was actually, Tim Pope lost it. It was um, colour film where the bloke had cut my eyebrow with Coke can and my, my roadie was sponging off the blood on the stage. <laughs> but the most day I got hit with, a, I got hit with a peach very hard at Reading Festival once as well. That was, that was nasty. <laughs> Sorry, these, these silly stories. I don't know if you mind this, Steve. No, no. I mean, God, who doesn't love a good story? I mean, I think that's that's the reason why they happen sometimes. It's like because we, you yeah. know, we have them to hold with us for our lives, which is which is brilliant. You meet, mentioned George Melly earlier, yeah, and yeah. when you told me those stories, it reminded me of something I saw with him. I think it was on a chat show called Parkinson in in yeah, the seventies, where he was set upon in the street and. What he did, instead of running away or reacting, he just turned to them. And I think he spoke in Latin, if my memory is correct. He spoke in Latin and said something to them, which confused them all, obviously. And then they just thought, oh, my God, he's more of a nutter than we are. And they ran off. And what you're telling me is sort of a little bit similar. (laughs) Yes. The thing is, if you well, the rule of thumb is, I mean, I I did a bit of boxing as well. The rule of thumb is if you're a big bloke, some, the big, another big bloke will come in the bar and try and beat you up. If you're a little bloke, then a big bloke will come and beat you up. But if you're a nutter, they'll keep a real safe distance. I've got a good nutter story, if you've got a quick moment. Oh, yeah. In Dundee, playing in Dundee, a very tough place. That looked, when I went there, I thought, my God, it's made of Kellogg's boxes. And when we went in, I'd come out after the show, and I saw the most frightening sight. I was, I was basically having a strip-down wash, my top. And I was in the toilet so I could see the mirror. In from the mirror came three Scots guys, 15 feet wide and only about five feet tall. And they just moved. I thought, hmm, this doesn't look too good. I'd got checky trousers on that looked a little bit like tartan trousers. And they were sort of pointing, yeah, yeah, take this. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. The worst place in the world to be thumped is a toilet. Everything is hard and shiny and nasty. So I thought, what am I going to do? And I turned around slowly and said, I'm terribly sorry, these, these trousers have got actually nothing to do with being Scots, nothing to do with being Scots at all. No, they're just checking, like, with the bare trousers. Oh my, God, oh, my God, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And they were like, and I kept doing it, and I gradually got past them out and legged it, and I've never been so scared in my life. But yes, I gave them a Rupert Bear speech. The Rupert Bear speech, yeah, that, that, should, that should make anyone run away. The, um, you mentioned Sting, the police. Uh, yeah. You've shared the stage with people like yeah. Peter Gabriel, with, with Bob yeah. Marley. Um, is there ever a sort of exchange in terms of you gain or you learn something from these people and they learn something from you? And I just wondered, to turn it on its head, what do these people learn from you? Because often <laughs> that's a surprising thing that is true. It's a, I think it's a reinforcement that the way they've done their career is sensible and mine is <laughs> My one of my friends, John, one of my friends, we do we also tour with Dire Straits, and a personal friend of mine, because he lived near me, was John Ilsley. And John always said, Oh my God. He said, You make it so difficult. If things are going well, you wreck them. And if things are going badly, you make them better again, then you wreck them. I don't know what it is. It's a uh, I don't might- believe that I don't believe that, because I think there is something else about your career which is much more positive. Now your shit with money. I mean, yeah. that's obvious. And, you know yeah. what I mean? That's that's something, uh, 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 <laughs> a different concept. There are people who invest and they're good with money and they make money from money. And that's something that you obviously haven't done. But 
there are people that manage to stay on an inspired creative path that fulfills them. And yeah, I think that's, that's the thing that's that you thing. really yeah. have done. Yeah, yeah. I'm very proud of that. I mean, for instance, even the contemporary, uh, one thing, the, the album that we've just made, I mean, that's the, I think it's about the 25th original album. And for me, I listen, I don't listen to music I listen, used to listen to much. I listen to everything that's new right across the board because I think you need that to be relevant. Obviously, my biggest influence is myself, having been at it for a long time. But the idea that my, what my son instilled in me was, he said, look, all your, all your new stuff is important, but it's one brick in a monstrous wall, and you should be very proud of that wall. I mean, the idea that I've been able to keep this going for 42 years it was ridiculous. I mean, I've owned this flat three times. I don't own it now. <laughs> I always, I always invest. I make a film with it, or I do something with it. I, I got a mortgage at the age of sixty-five last year. It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the truth is, you know, when we all end up in the grave, what we're going to do? Be buried with our money? Do you know absolutely. what I mean? What, what yeah, is, absolutely. what is the choice? You either have, if you have a creative life, the most mm. important thing is to continue that creative life. If you have money and that, and you still can be creative with that money, but it can also restrict you. I mean, I've experienced yeah. that in the past when, you know, as a successful TV presenter a long time ago, um, I think I was at my most uncreative during my most successful period. Mm, I think I think that sometimes um, it's difficult. You were talking about affirmation for what you've done. Um, because of leaving... Fisher Z in that first year, it was very successful. And then having a court case with management, I never actually got either financial or um, recognition for it. Or I, I didn't do the, the huge celebratory with famous tours, which gives you a feeling about that. But for me, one of the most, I don't know, the idea of creating something new, the process of doing it and then playing it to people is just extraordinary. As long as I can keep ticking, it's fine. And I have my moments. The biggest problem I have, when I get when I don't have chance to create as much stuff, I always get fed up when the business goes wrong. I get involved in the business and I'm terrible at it, and it upsets me. Then I get out of it again, and I'm I have nil patience, which is the again going back to the difference between an off stage personality and an on stage. The thing that makes me good as a performer, I think, is things come out my mouth and out my head without any filter on a stage, and I really am at one with people, whether if I'm playing to a monstrously big crowd, then I like to think I make each person that's there makes me make, makes them feel like they're in a little club and I'm playing to them. And if you're playing in a little club, you, we, we, for instance, did with COVID, we just done two, we did London and we did Manchester last weekend. They were fabulous gigs. You're talking about gigs that normally hold 300 people. You maybe had a hundred, you have a hundred plus there because of COVID restrictions and people not turning. They were extraordinary gigs. Um, the experience of performance is quite extraordinary, and the and the and the writing thing is wonderful. As I say, I'm actively always trying to get out the business, but I always end up in that as well. Do you write for you, or do you write with an audience in mind? Because your audience is incredibly loyal. I mean, I saw that that gig; it actually shocked me uh, because I don't think I've been in an audience that you felt this connection between them. And you, and it was an amazing feeling because it had this power to it. Well, the thing about it is that because I've changed names and what I always believed is that you should change name and bit label if you change musical style a bit. And that, that turns out to have been a bit dim. If, if, if I'd have started off as an art person called Trouser Parts, 
Trouser Parts could have done music, could have done poetry, could have written books, could have made a painting made of his breakfast and it would still be relevant. And these days kids can do that and I love them for it. They, they do, their first record will be called Cabbage and then the next one will be called Pandas on Acid and they, and, and they follow it. But my career, to answer your question, my career has been difficult to follow. Those that have managed to follow it are keen. Do you write for yourself, though, or, for, or with the audience in mind, ever? You know, is there an expectation when you sit I, down? I think I, think, I think I write about what affects me, and it can be anything. Um, so I suppose it's writing for me, really. Some would say, my ex-wife and family, for instance, that what, what I write is 100% honest, and what I live is not as 100% honest outside of it. Oh, that's interesting. So that, where, where is the difference? Where, is the, where does it depart from each other? Because I can be totally open in my work as an artist, whereas I'm much more protective and much shyer when I'm, when the work, I'm, if you're presenting something to the public, to the world, I mean, my, again, one of my ex-wives used to say, if she wants to know what's going on, she'll listen to the next album. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that is such a compliment. I hope so. I mean, I, in some ways it is. I mean, recently my, my kids will say they love me. I've got five children in their 20s and 30s, all of which are quite happy to speak to me, which is all good. I get on very well with them. They all they all have the same mum, which is amazing in my business. And I still get on with it. I was divorced from their mum, but we still get on very well. But they said, and they had a bit of a, recently there's some personal stuff that's been out the window. And they, they, they said, look, you're never 100% anywhere except when you're making music. And he said, no problem, Dad, we know that. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. At the beginning, we talked about the fact that uh, the lyrics, the words are one side, mm. um, the performance mm. and the musicianship's the musicianship are the other sides. The performance, as I said, when I went to this concert, I was uh, I was taken aback by a number of things, and one of them was the energy on stage that you yeah. are able to transport um, from your playing. Um, now, you know, I'm 62, you're about 65, I think. I'm 66, I'm only 66. Oh, wow. Then, but, I mean, this energy is still there to do that. Yeah. Um, where, where do you think you sort of got this from in terms of building this over the years that a performance can be so strong on stage despite, you know, being Thank a bit you. older? You just do it differently in the same way as your, the, physical, the physical aspects of performance. For instance, I've lost six or seven notes high, but I've gained about 10 low. So therefore, I do things in slightly different keys. But the energy, it's, it's, I think it's about the spirit of the human being, really. I mean, I, I used to do, I would do all sorts of things. I mean, I had a 60-foot lead when we were mucking about, when we were, like, in 20s. And I could run right across the stage, only the way Springsteen does. I'd skid right across the shiny stage on my knees. But I think the inherent life force, if you're lucky, as long as that ticks, I mean, I, you must have met, I've met people in the 80s and 90s that are like children. And I, I really, really hope that both you and I have that capability. I saw such a deterioration in my mother, um, who died relatively recently. 
And the opposite, my dad died suddenly of cancer, but my God, he was sharp as mustard and a child right to the end. And I really hope that would be my, my thing. But I just think you learn to do it differently. What also, if you came to see us play on, say, two or three of the dates on the same tour, now what's odd about us, but not so much other people, the lighting men and the sound men hate me. It's never the same set, exactly the same thing. I only say what comes into my mind based on the people that are in that room. I don't have any fixed sayings or I don't know what I'm going to say, which upsets the band sometimes. Sometimes if I'm, I stop in the middle of a song if I don't feel like it and explain it to the audience. And again, I've done, I do a lot of solo performance as well. So it's, it's easier when you're solo. With a band, it's more difficult. I just think, I mean, I've always been known as Mr. Enthusiasm and I long may that reign really. You don't have uh, a set list in the sense that it's a set set list. No, we have it. We have a set set list, but even for instance, the beginnings and the ends of the songs are not set. And if I don't feel like doing that one, I'll leave it out and bring something else in. What would you do if you went on stage and the audience just went blank? Um, I would. I I think I'd walk off. I'd, I'd probably come off the stage and talk to them, and play in the audience. I do that sometimes. Oh wow. I mean, I think there's, it's one thing that we you mentioned there is I, I'm not nostalgic at all. I like telling stories about the past, but I'm not nostalgic in the sense that everything back then was brilliant and everything no. after that is shit. I don't feel that at all. I feel my I, life I today know. is far more interesting and dynamic than it's mm. ever been. And I get that feeling from you as well. And in a sense, I feel that you're lucky and the reason that you're lucky is that the music business which has changed dramatically over the years um is so centered around making money touring that actually it plays into your forte it it does do if 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 it wasn't for covid and brexit yes the problem for me is i always thought and what i enjoy doing it's like i have two different brands i have john watts solo who does very different things very noisy i have to say but different things next door to a heavy metal uh, band at south by southwest we were told to turn down and as a solo performer i took that as a great compliment sorry i got confused i was talking about two different brands wasn't it? where did it come from i lost i got lost sorry there was a yeah, about the music, about the music business, and it changed so much that actually you're. Oh, yes, the lo- thing about the live thing is, I always thought my pension was that because as long as I want to perform or even talk or read or do anything, it would always be there. And the big thing about having a following is there's two things. The downside is sometimes they only want you to do what they associate with a limited period in their lives. It's like wanting to wear. They want to. I always say to them, "Look, I'm not. You might." Can you wear the same pair of jeans you did when you were 25? And most of them can, don't, can't say yes. Um, I can actually, which is ridiculous. I've, I've re- recently, I've lost lots of weight because of being miserable, but apart from that, it's fine. But you say, you know, I'm not a pair of trousers. And so what I will always do, I'll always play and perform a certain proportion of stuff that people really want to hear, because that's fine. I love doing that. But I'll also always give them things that make them think a little bit more as well. You know, and, and so I think I think that, in live performance terms, it should be. It should be an ongoing. It should be an ongoing. But at the moment, it's just so precarious with everything being cancelled and moved all the time. We're, but what I am and what the band are is extremely versatile. For instance, we've just with our German tour that's supposed to be coming up soon. We're still not sure because of the areas what's going to happen. We've firmed up four out of twelve. But I've said to the promoters, look, if you don't get X City, I will turn up with the band because we can. The seven of us 
in our in a little in a little bus and we'll play on a flat back truck on the dock sod it and at that point the promoters think oh my god is he really going to do that oh no and so hopefully it makes the reality better i mean i'll, I'll do we, we can do we're thinking about doing a guerrilla weekend where we just turn up and do that and play and for instance if we wanted to play if you want to play a big city and the venue can't play and the rules are wrong you can apply to the you know to the students and um play the university campuses or we'll do whatever so yeah. I, I like that. I like that element. It's the idea of being alternative that I like. I've never sat very well with, I've been signed to seven different multinational record companies in a period of time, and I've successfully fallen out with all of them, which is not good news because I'd be richer if I hadn't. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, would you be richer? This is the point. In what know. way would you be richer? There's one thing that I, when I went, when I went in into uh, therapy, so we're going back to this clinical psychologist mm, thing, mm. Um, I've got a real name, which is Stephen James, and I adopted another name, which was yeah. Steve, Steve Blaine. Absolutely. And they told me, okay, then, you know, you are basically a schizophrenic. I was happy that mm -hmm. I only had two personalities rather than 32. But in a yeah. sense, by being Fisher Z, which is essentially John yeah, Watts. Yeah, it's me, yeah, yeah. yeah. And being John Watts, which is John Watts, and they are different, um, does that mean <laughs> that you are also a schizophrenic? Yeah, possibly. The thing that upset me, I think, was, I mean, obviously, the reason I came up with the name Fisher Z is because it doesn't mean anything. And I thought from the, the old, um, you know, the Lacan thing, signifier and signified, the idea that the Fisher Z logo name would, would only signify the sound of the band. And it did. It was brilliant, but rubbish, because it means that my voice and everything is always tied to that. When I left it, and I, when I left Fisher Z and I did two, two or three solo albums, I was not aware of things like the brand. I didn't understand what the brand was about. I wasn't interested. The fact was, I was the brand, but, and it's taken me all this time. My son said, look, Dad, he said, look, anything you do, if you decide to whistle down bottles, Call it Fisher's Ed or call it Fisher's Ed Solo. Then people can follow it. I've been the cry. I've been all sorts of things. Paramusic, God knows what else. You know? And so, yeah, I, th I think there's a degree of that. I also, my big thing was, okay, I've, we've made it as Fisher's Ed. I don't see why I can't be equally as universal with John Watts. And I, and I proved very successfully the power of a brand. <laughs> <laughs> well john i wish you well and i can't wait to see you on tour again once all this is a bit died yeah. down and you're able to get out here and and tour because i say it again that energy and that enthusiasm from the audience was so yeah. sort of gripping during that concert oh, I and i just absolutely adored it so thank you oh, for no. meeting you in hamburg again yeah and Thank inviting you. me because it gave me one of the great evenings in the last couple of years. <laughs> That's lovely. I'd say if I'm, when I'm doing one of the solo shows, what I do is I do like a complete record, then I do requests and bits and pieces, and I sometimes have guests that I talk to. At some stage, maybe you'd be interested in doing that with me. I'd Come love to. Yeah. I'd yeah. love to, John. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you on tour. Thank you, Steve. And that's it for this interview with John Watts. I hope you enjoyed it. Look out for more interviews on Pop, the History Makers. I'll see you soon.